Amen. How many of you know that our God is great? And he's kind and he's merciful and he's trustworthy and he's good. You know, I, I love singing songs like that because, you know, you can sing the repetition of that song and miss out on the reality of how great God really is. And when you begin to appreciate the greatness of God and the goodness of God, um, when you face circumstances and trials and situations and things aren't going the way you want it to, when you have an appreciation for the goodness and the greatness of God, you can lift your hands in the midst of anything and worship Him. And there's a comfort that God gives in worship uh, that you can't find anywhere else. Great is our God. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, let's stand and let's read the word of God together as we get ready to dig in. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1 this morning. So when you get there, say amen. Amen. I'll give a couple seconds for those pages that are still rustling. Thank you, sir. The word of the Lord reads as thus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Keep reading. Father, we thank you for your word, um, which goes out uh, and is able to uh, teach and rebuke and exhort with all power, and it does not return to you void. And so, God, we pray that today your word would uh, richly dwell in our hearts and we would be impacted by it in such a way that our lives will never be the same again. And so we just pray that in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's people said amen. 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 You may be seated. Back in the day, uh, which wasn't too long ago, but uh, back in the day for me, uh, I used to play a lot of basketball, ton of basketball, right? And it gets, it gets more difficult to keep up on wanting to play basketball as much once you get married and uh, you start uh, having kids and then you're working in the real world. You just don't have the kind of time to go and play the way that you did when you were younger. Um, but uh, when you used to play a lot, so I, me and my brothers used to play a lot. We, you know, we used to go to the YMCA to play. My mom always had a court in the driveway. So, you know, if it was raining outside, we'd still go play. If it was snowing outside, we'd just put gloves on, believing that the gloves, if you could still make it, that would make your shot better. And so, we, you know, we used to get up six, and eight, 6 in the morning in the summer times, get a jug of water, go down to the courts, be there all day uh, until, the, until the street lights come on. Um, but, but what happens when you start playing a lot of basketball, you get involved in a lot of pickup games, right? And, uh, and what happens in pickup games is there's usually two captains that get picked 
are two guys that just come forward to be captains, right? And, and automatically, you already know who's not going to get picked on the team, right? Because there's usually more people than you need standing there waiting to play. And so as a captain, you're trying to identify those type of people that you want on your team. So you're looking for the tall people because you assume that all tall people can play basketball, <laughs> right? You're, you're looking for, you're <laughs> I heard somebody say false, amen. Uh, you're, you're looking for people who, who, who look a little muscular, like they can run and jump real high. Uh, uh, you, and, and sometimes there's guys there that are, are, they have full matching outfits on, so their sneakers and laces match their shorts and their shirt, and they got wristbands on and headbands and arm sleeves and all this. You don't want to pick that guy. You don't want to pick that guy because he wants to appear like he can play. Amen. But typically he can't. And so as a captain, you're already in your mind identifying the type of players you want to put on your team based on their physical stature and how they appear because you want to win. I had a, uh, I had a, a friend in college uh, uh, named Eric. He was 6'7". Uh, we called him 6'7", right? And <laughs> Uh, just just a, a white guy from the Middle East, you know, and so as we were getting ready, you know, getting our intramural uh, squads together, I'm like, I got to have that guy on my team because at the very least, he's going to be able to rebound and take care of the post, block some shots. What I didn't know was that Eric, who was 6'7", only had a one and a half inch vertical, which means he could only jump as high as he could get on his tippy toes. So he couldn't rebound. He, he could barely run. I mean, he was... I mean, I love him to death, but he was not a good basketball player for his size. Um, but, but the beautiful thing is that even though when we're choosing teams like pickup basketball and we want to win and we're trying to identify who has the most talent and who's the most physically gifted, when God sets his affections on those that he wants to put on his team, he chooses the exact opposite. Because what he wants to do is he, he wants to take those who typically would be rejected and declined for service, those who don't have anything to offer, and he wants to place them on his team so that when they win, there's nobody can get the glory and praise but God. See, see, when you can't play that well and you get drafted on a team, you're just excited to play, right? But don't let you win too. You play and you get to win, and you know you don't contribute anything to the squad. And so you can't boast. You have to go to the one who drafted you, who was the only one really doing something. And then the other team who thought they were going to win now has to give glory to the one who drafted the team of nobodies and made something happen. And so that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul has, uh, when he starts the book, he he, uh, he opens up by gracing them and telling them how much he's encouraged by their faith and how much he's encouraged by the grace of God that's on their lives. And then he begins to jam into them and say, but there's division in the church. And there's division in the church because you think you're spir- because your spiritual arrogance and pride makes you think that because you are associated with a particular person that you're a better spiritual giant than somebody else. And so they were arguing, some are with Peter, some are with Paul, some are with Christ, some are with Apollos. And so they began to disassociate themselves and make divisions and say, because I roll with that person, that makes me better. Paul says, no, I'm glad I didn't baptize most of y'all because y'all are crazy, right? But he says, you weren't saved because of your association with a particular person that came to baptize you and preach the gospel. Matter of fact, the message that they preached was foolishness. 
because the cross was foolishness. How do we know that? Because the Jews and the Greeks would not have accepted the message of the cross. The Greeks would say, how would this God who's supposed to be powerful and mighty come and shame himself to be on the cross? That doesn't make sense to me. The Jews couldn't fathom in their minds how the Messiah who was supposed to come and overthrow the Roman government and, and, and usher in the new kingdom of the Jews could die on the cross. That was offensive to the nature of who they thought the Messiah should be. So the message that Paul came to preach and Peter came to preach and Apollos came to preach was a message of foolishness where they couldn't even utilize that to boast in it. And so, so they, this group of people were already outcast amongst society. We'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But then Paul gets to verse 25 and he basically says, he says, they, they already, uh, sorry, that human wisdom will not lead you to the cross of Christ. Human wisdom, that's why he says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we get here to verse 26, and I have one point, one point only. God uses the less than ordinary to nullify our attempt at acceptance based on our own credentials. God uses the less than ordinary to nullify our attempt at acceptance based on our own credentials. Let me explain. God uses the unimpressive nature of people and things and the foolishness of the message of the cross to humble man's attempt to get to God without him. So you said, you, you, see, you're, you're making up messages and, 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 uh, and saviors to, to come around, to wrap yourself around because you want to try to get to me without me. And he says, you know what, I'm going to put an obstacle in your way so that you can only trust in me to get to me. And there's no way around the message. But the message is not just going to be up front. We'll talk about that later when we get to Jesus and his, and his parables. But he says the message is not going to be up front. It's going to be hidden in the foolishness of the cross. Look at verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Consider the, that process of information by giving consideration to various aspects to think about to reflect on something, to examine and weigh before making a decision. But it basically means look at your own ranks. Paul is telling them, he's saying, look, look, just look around the room. Look at yourselves. You, you want to you wanna boast? You want to boast in your spiritual giantness? You want to you boast in who you're associated with? All right, before I get to my point, look around the room and consider who's in this room. The passage was not meant to be a put down to the early church, but an affirmation of the love and power of God. It wasn't meant to, uh, to, to uh, uh, be a put down, but it was meant to shatter the pride of the, this arrogant church. Right? Then we get to calling. He says, consider your calling, brothers. This means to urgently invite someone to accept responsibilities for a particular task, implying a new relationship with the one who does the calling. Right now, this makes me think of uh, 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 the movie The Matrix. Right now, the movie as a whole was not good. The first one was phenomenal, probably one of the best individual movies of all time. Changed the game, but the trilogy was trash. And I'll argue anybody on that. Amen. I don't. I don't <laughs> right. Got my amen. amen. <laughs> but 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 if. Think about the relationship, when we think about calling, think about the relationship that Neo had with Morpheus, right? Neo was this nerdy guy, just kind of in his own little world, like unliked by a lot of people, right? And Morpheus is this, this cool, cool guy from another kingdom or another world, 
that just kind of steps in, and he calls Morpheus. And he says, I want to call you to a particular task, Morpheus, because of something that I see in you. Right? Now, he says, when I call you to this task, you have to make a decision. He says, there's one pill where if you eat it and you accept the task, that means that there is no turning back once you accept this call. Your life will never be the same again. It will change every single thing about you. Or you can take the other pill, which means that you can forget the call that I've just given to you, and you can go back to life as normal. See, when God calls us to a particular task, and we respond in acceptance of that task, he's telling us, your life will never be the same again. You can't go back to the other life. You can't go back to the old way of life as if the call that I just gave you does not exist. See, for Morpheus, he could forget the call. For us as the Christian, the moment you step into a discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ, you have given up your right to go back to the other life. Your response to God now becomes, how high, sir? How low, sir? How far around, sir? When, sir? Why? You, you, you immediately position yourself to receive instruction from the king, and you obey. So he says, consider your calling, brothers. Then he says, not many of you were wise according to the flesh, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were mighty, referring to their physical strength or social standing. Not many of you uh, were of noble background, meaning your family backgrounds were not involved with wealth, education, and social, uh, social privilege. See, God transformed this group of people in spite of their humanly unimpressive pedigree, which excludes all boasting for them. They couldn't boast in their ancestry, their accomplishments, their affiliation to one preacher or another. He said, there is nothing impressive about you at all for me to lay my affections on. There is nothing about you attractive enough to draw me close to you to lay my affections on. See, he's saying, you may be attractive to some people. Like, they might look at you and be attractive to your good looks, They might see all the money that you have and say, I want some of that and be attracted to you because of that. They might see your social standing and your family background and say, I want to be involved in that type of societal influence. But God's standard for what he lays his affections on is so perfectly holy that he won't diminish himself just to lay his affections on something that's not of any value. There is nothing that you have that God needs or wants. He is all the him that he needs. See, God's God's standard is so perfectly holy that he just doesn't lay his affections on anything. And the only thing that's worthy enough to draw out the affections of God is God himself. And so he's letting the church know that you can pridefully make these man-made divisions all you want to, but there's absolutely nothing about you that made God want to save you. There's there's nothing you bring to the table. This, This isn't a bartering relationship where you bring something to me so that I can say, hey, if you do this for me, then I'll be your friend and I'll accept you. He says, no, there is no 50-50, there is no 70-30, there is no 80-20, there's 100-0. Are you willing to accept zero credit? Because God does not want 
to give any credit away. He says, listen, if you want to come to me, you want to be accepted by me, then you have to be okay with not getting any credit. He says, I'm not, I don't just give credit up like that. I don't give it up. I don't give no props up. I reserve all props for me. So he's letting them know, listen, if you, see, see Jesus, he, Jesus did some key things. He, gave, he put some boundaries on the discipleship relationship. He said, there's certain people that just can't follow me. And one of those types of people are people who want credit for something that only God can do. Basically, what Paul is telling them is he, he's, saying, he's saying, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. He said, y'all, 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 y'all on the spiritual come up and y'all got new. Come up means that your life is getting better in a good way. New means that you're acting in a way that was different from the way that you acted before when we were in a relationship. Just want to clarify. But he said, I see what's going on. He said, you on the spiritual come up and y'all just got new. Y'all, y'all thought y'all, was, y'all, y'all got saved and all of a sudden y'all thought y'all was better than everybody. And then you started comparing yourself to these other churches and how you do it better than them. And these other pastors that you're associated with, my pastor's better than yours. And he said, there's an arrogance there. When, when you nor your pastor nor your church had anything to offer me, and I accepted you anyway. It says, the wisdom of God and the plan of salvation was accomplished by a crucified Christ, hidden from the wise and learned, but revealed to simple believers. That's why in Matthew 25, 11, 25, he says this. He says, he says, at the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Amen. Now, what is, he, what is he saying? He's not merely talking about little kids here. He's talking about the position of the heart in light of your need from God. See, see, see little children are dependent upon their parents. Little children trust in their parents. Little children need their parents. And so God says, for those of you who think that you don't need me or don't trust me or aren't dependent upon me, I'm going to hide the message of the gospel from you until you position your heart in such a way that shows your neediness for me, and then it will be revealed through the message of a foolish cross. But note in verse 26 that Paul, he doesn't say that not any of them were wise or, or, or weak or, or, or of privileged background. He said many of them, right? So in the New Testament, we do meet some believers of high social standing, but in this group, most of them were of, of, of no type of influence whatsoever, right? And I'm, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it, it reads as this. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what it says in verse 11. And such were some of you. This is the group of people Paul is writing to, that he's talking to. So he says, consider your call. Look around. Some of y'all was practicing homosexuality not too long ago. Some of y'all was drunkards. 
Some of y'all were liars. Some of y'all were prideful and arrogant. He says, but God. So, so from, he said, you're measuring up yourself with each other, but by earthly standards, all of y'all don't mean nothing. Y'all don't even meet the standards of earthly men. How do you think now you began to meet the standards of the king? Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 26, Paul reminded them of what they were, that they weren't wise, mighty, or noble, and that, that God called them not because of what they were, but in spite of what they were. Right? Verses 27 through 29, Paul reminded the Corinthians of why God called them. Right? So he, he's, he said, listen, I'm going to position you in such a way that when I do something in your life, the spotlight doesn't remain on you, but it immediately gets pointed back to me because there's no way you could have done what just happened without me. Right? That God chose the foolish, the weak, and the low, and despised, and the despised to show the proud world their need and his grace. See, the lost world admires birth and social status and financial success and power and recognition, but none of these things guarantee eternal life. The message and miracle of God's grace in Christ utterly confounds the high and mighty people of this world. The wise of this world cannot understand how God changes sinners into saints, and the mighty of this world are helpless to duplicate the miracle. God's foolishness confounds the wise. His weakness confounds the mighty. God himself has chosen to manifest his power through the weak so that there will be no doubt who should receive the glory. The victory is in God's resources, not human achievement or social standing. See, we see that throughout even biblical history. God used Noah, who looked like a crazy old man. Find shelter in the ark. He's building, people are mocking him and making fun of him. God gave Noah a silly, message, a silly message, what sounded like a silly message in human terms. I'm going to judge man, build the ark, get on it. Who listened? Nobody. Moses was a murderer, and, a, and he had a stuttering problem, wasn't a great communicator. God used him to lead the people of, Egypt, the people of Israel out of Egypt and set aside for him a nation. Jonah. God called him to go to Nineveh. Jonah was a racist. God, God loves using people who are highly inadequate to accomplish his means. Because when he does, all res- glory is reserved for him. See, see it, it's, it's not even the matter of God needing your help to do anything. God doesn't want your help to do anything. Because I don't know if you know it or not, but God is a glory hog. He is. And rightfully so. He should. He would be less God if he didn't want all the glory for himself. And so the way that he rigs our lives is to put us in positions where we have to trust him based off the foolishness of what he's calling us to do so that when he accomplishes it, he's the only one that can get the glory. 
Otherwise, he has to share glory if, he, if you do something that you didn't need him to do. And God doesn't like to share glory. Verse 28, he chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. This term, nullify the things that are, uh, this word is translated many different ways, but its, meaning, uh, its main meaning is to make something useless, to make it null, void, inoperative, powerless, not necessarily non-existent. He destroys it, but not annihilates it. So God wants to take what's wise, the things that you use as functional saviors, the things that you put your trust in, God takes those things and, and he, he, he eliminates any chance for you to utilize them the way you want it to. He says, I'm going to make that thing that you're trusting in, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave it powerless. I'm not going to destroy it. I'm going to leave it there, but it doesn't have any power. I'm going to void it out. Sometimes you just can't make sense of all that God does. Verse 29. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Salvation must be holy of grace. Otherwise, God cannot get the glory. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, verse 30, who came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God shows his wisdom by means of the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption that we have in Christ. So Paul, he told, he was telling the Corinthians, reminding them what they were, why God called them, and now he's reminding them what they have in Christ Jesus. And so this idea of uh, righteousness that he's talking about, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, being found in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to us as wisdom and presented these things for every believer. Righteousness has to do with our standing before God. We are justified. God declares us righteous before God. It's a Mesopotamian term that comes from a river reed, which was used as a construction tool to judge the horizontal straightness of walls and fences. God chose the term to be metaphorically of his own nature. He is the straight-edge ruler by which all things are valued. This concept asserts God's righteousness as well as his right to judge what is straight. Sanctification, to set apart something belonging to God for his service. This is from the same root word as holy or consecrated. In the Old Testament, it referred to a place, person, or thing that was separated for God, by God. Theologically, it refers to the believer's position in Christ. The moment we put our faith in him, he is justified or we are justified and sanctified. Redemption emphasizes the fact that we have been set free because Jesus Christ paid the price for us on the cross. It literally means to buy back. It was a term of slavery. When one was captive in slavery, there had to be a payment in order to buy back the slave. You, as Christians, the moment you trust in Jesus, by the blood of Christ have been bought back from the wrath of God to the grace of God. In one sense, we have three tenses of salvation given here. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, righteousness. We are being saved from the power of sin, sanctification, and we shall be saved from the presence of sin, redemption. And every believer has all of these blessings in Christ Jesus. 
That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have every blessing available to us, but where? In Christ, in the heavenly places. So he says, he says, he says at the end of this, he says, so in light of what I'm laying out that there's like this, that you have nothing worth of any value, you don't come from any, anywhere valuable, you don't have anything valuable, you're not wise enough, what, what are you boasting in? He says, does Paul have more of Jesus than you do? Does Peter have more of the spirit than you do? He says, you're, you're boasting in man. He said, I, I want you to boast in Christ. See the, see, the beauty is, he didn't tell them to stop boasting. He didn't say to stop boasting. He said, I want you to reorient what it is that you're boasting about. That's why he says in, 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 verse, uh, uh, in verse 31, he says, let him who boasts, boast in, boast in the Lord. Taken from Jeremiah 9, 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let the mighty man not boast in his might. Let the rich man not boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, they thought that God would delight in their social status, in their spiritual depth, in their riches, and in their wisdom. But he says, no, I don't boast in anything that you have to offer. The only thing I, bo- I want you to boast in is that you know me. Yeah. And you understand my ways. He says, so stop boasting. He says, I, I love here how in uh, Jeremiah... Uh, the word Lord there is a reference to Yahweh. Uh, but here Paul uses it as a, as a divine reference to Christ to let them know that Yahweh and Christ are on equal footing, that Jesus was indeed God. He always slips little nuances like that where he's copying from the Old Testament and he, and he, says, he says, I want you to know that when it comes to the eternal value of who God is, Jesus is that. Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. We don't boast in ourselves, but of him who all the fullness of God bodily dwells. See, the gospel of grace gives no room for personal boasting. God is not impressed with our looks. He's not impressed with our social status or our standing or our birthrights or our achievements our national heritage, or our financial bank accounts. He says, there's nothing you can offer me. I own a cattle on a thousand hills. I exist from eternity to eternity, everlasting to everlasting. There is nothing you can present before me that makes you worth anything to me other than me graciously laying my affections on you. Where in your lives... Have you exalted something that replaces the gospel, the power of the gospel? I know Epiphany is a a, a nice little church right now, but Epiphany doesn't bring you into good standing with God. Amen. 
Your parents may be believers, but their relationship with God has no bearing on your relationship with God. Your preference of worship styles doesn't make you more holy as a Christian. Because you can give more out of your pocket doesn't please God anymore. Where are you boasting at right now in your lives? We have absolutely nothing to boast in because if we look at ourselves, if we consider our callings, we can find the holes in anything that might bring value to us to place it before God. So he says, he says, he says, this boasting of yours is causing much division in the church. And the reality is you don't have much to boast about. But boast in this, that you know God and you understand his ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus and only Jesus could accomplish something on the cross that we could not. Jesus is the only one that can stand before you and boast because he's worthy. He is the slain lamb and the reigning lion. And you've given him a name above every name. And so, God, I pray right now today that if anyone does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that their attempts to get to you without you would be stalled, and they'd be forced to look upon the name of Jesus as their only means of boasting. God, keep us in your care and continue just to bless us by your word as we're challenged day and day to follow you more closely and to set aside every weight and encumbrance that keeps us from walking in obedience to your ways. So we pray that now in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As we transition to um, communion, man, you can begin to come. It's just a, a time for us to remember what the Lord has done on the cross, but also to celebrate what the Lord has done on the cross that he has indeed redeemed us and brought us back, bought us back by his blood. And so as we receive the elements now, let's, let's take a moment to consider our calling and then rejoice that God has invited us in in spite of everything that we were lacking. Let's receive the elements together.